didn't our brother Paul write some wonderful thoughts down? That passage is amazing. There's one other passage that he wrote we're going to read in just a moment. It's just six verses, but it contains the whole sermon this morning. Uh, We have to prepare for it a little bit, but uh, when we get to it, those six verses will give you the message of the best plan ever. Our theme this year is Freedom in Christ. Uh, We resume our series, our second series now, called Free from Sin. Uh, If this is the first time you've been here on this series, I'm sorry. Uh, The first few have laid the groundwork for how wonderful being free from sin is. Uh, We started with sin. What's so bad about sin? The world today doesn't pay much attention to sin or worry about it too much, it seems. In fact, they kind of celebrate it, but uh, we looked at sin and found out that it's a big deal, a horrible big deal. It's something that God detests. It's something that God hates uh, because of his nature and also because of what it does to his children, he recognizes. So we understood sin a little better, and then we spent two weeks on God. Uh, one week, first week, was the bad news about God and sin. We found out how God's holiness, uh, his perfect justice, his ultimate wrath, uh, compared to when it relates to sin, gives us no hope. And then the second, uh, the other side that we talked about God was the good news about God in us. Uh, yes, he is perfectly holy and just and wrathful uh, towards sin, but his perfect love and patience and mercy toward us, he loves us so much uh, that he wants to work it out. And we began to see some hope as we looked at this problem of sin. Uh, When we saw God in in that balance picture that we had, we understand that our perfect God has a perfectly huge problem with us as sinners. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the best plan ever. I call it the best plan ever because it's the only way to solve that big problem. If it's the biggest problem ever and there's only one way to solve it, then this has got to be the best plan ever. Now, here's our situation. Let's just remind ourselves where we are. We're sinners. Case closed. All of us. Um, I realize there's young children here that uh, are not in that category, but all of us who are paying attention and understand what's going on and are cognizant of uh, what's happening today are sinners. All of us. And some of you think, well, that's one way to talk about it, but I know some are worse than me. Well, okay. Well, you want to line up? I got time. We can take a half hour or so and line up if you want. We just start up here and say, I want the worst center right here, and we'll just kind of curl around this direction as we go and get less and less centers as we go back that way. How long do you think it would take us to do that? When I thought of that illustration, I'd spend about 10 minutes just sitting there thinking, man, that'd be something, wouldn't it? Can you imagine how we'd argue about that? Can you imagine how long we'd fuss and fidget with, hold it now, no, you, you, you get on that away. Uh-uh. No, I belong, I, I, no. Can you imagine what we'd do with that? If the Apostle Paul was here, in the middle of it, he'd say, excuse me, one question. Where did you say the worst ones go? And he had had that direction. Yeah. Uh, but if we did that foolish exercise of lining up from worst center to the, the least center amongst us, you know what we'd have when we got done? 
a line of sinners? That's the answer. A line of sinners. We are all sinners. That's our situation. And since we're all sinners, our situation is, and we're dealing with a God who has this problem. We're dealing with a God that we've spent a couple of weeks talking about, who because of his holiness, his justice, his wrath, he can't stand the stench of our presence because we're all sinners. He can't stand the stench of our presence, but because of his love and his patience and his mercy, he loves us so much that he wants to hug us. But he can't have us in his presence. Do you understand this problem ultimately, eternally? That's our situation. Now, have you ever seen a plan? Seen a plan? Before it comes to fruition. I have. I'm sure most of you have. When you get a new job, you walk into a new job and they explain it to you and they say, here's the problems and here's what we want you to do and all of that. And it may take a while. But as you think about it, as you learn people and as you learn the processes and you think through it, you begin to see, I see how to fix this. I, I see the plan out there. I know what it looks like. Maybe something as simple as a new home. You get a new house and you you look at it and you say, man, this thing's a mess. This is poorly decorated. The colors are all wrong. But I can see how I can fix this place. Some of you are good at seeing plans. Some of us aren't so good at seeing plans. But you understand the concept. And it means more when it finally comes to fruition, when you've seen it before. I, I, I knew I could do this. I knew this could happen. Okay, take that human illustration and understand that God saw this plan before eternity began. God saw it. He, he knew this is the way. This problem can be fixed. It made sense to him. It took him centuries. It didn't make sense to man. It took centuries for him to work it out. But he saw this plan. When man sinned, even before man sinned, but when sin came between man and God, God saw this plan. He waited till just the right time to implement it. Now, we can't see it like God did, but it'll help us understand the plan if we prepare a little bit. So that's what I want to do for just a moment is prepare us for this. First, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There's the real problem. I mean, we get these pictures of scales and us and sinners and God and all of that. But here's the problem. If you sin, you got to die. Because of who God is. He can't be in His presence. But because of all those things we talked about, the wages of sin is death. Now, here, let's start to understand the plan. In Leviticus 17, way back then, God said to the people, He said, the life of the creature is in the blood. And I've given it to you 
to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. This isn't the plan, but this is he's starting to prepare us for the plan. He told his people about blood sacrifice. I don't think they got it. I don't think they understood why. It's a primitive thing, but he told them, now the life of the creature is in the blood. That's why I gave them to you. And I gave them to you so you'd begin to understand this, to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It's the blood. Sin has to be paid for. Now, if you grew up in the Old Testament days, you'd, you'd understand it. You'd see it acted out all your life. I read Leviticus 17 11. Most of you sit there and think, well, okay, the life's in the blood. Make atonement on sacrifice, something like that. If you were a little Jewish kid growing up, you'd understand this. Because you'd see it over and over and over. Sin required death. Somebody did something wrong. If there was a murder in the community, there wasn't a whole lot of articles and judges and courts and foolishness for years and years and years. That murderer died the next day. Somebody's blood was shed. Somebody else has got to die. You would understand sin requires death. The wages of sin is death. If your ox got loose and you hadn't had it controlled and it it trampled somebody to death, you had to die. Sin requires death. There was a provision you could redeem your life by paying somebody enough. But death was required. Every week you would see blood, lots of blood. Every week you would go with your father as he went out to the flocks and he picked the lamb. He picked the one perfect lamb. And he would carry it, and you would go with him as he went to the priest, and he gave it to the priest, and the priest walked back to the altar, and the blood flowed. Blood and more blood and more blood. And you watched these blood sacrifices, and you were figuring out, this is how you deal with sin. Sin's serious business. Now, to really be prepared for understanding the plan, we've got to learn three words. Three kind of big words in Bible terms, but they're, they're really not that big or hard. The first word, it's a religious word. It's propitiation. We don't use it much. We use the uh, sacrifice of atonement more these days. But if you were a little Jewish kid growing up, you'd understand propitiation. Because you'd do the sacrifices every week and you'd do all that. But one day a year, something big had happened. Now you'd know it was a serious day because they'd tell you, this is the day we have to fast. It's the day of atonement. Only day all year we have to fast. But on the day of atonement, we have to fast. And we have to make the sacrifices like we do. 
And this is a very special day because we'll watch as the high priest goes into the most holy place. He only goes in there once a year. And he will do all of these preparations and he'll get all of the sacrifices done. for, And then he'll, he'll take the blood from the, the, the ultimate sacrifice and he'll enter the most holy place. And in there is the, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the two golden cherubim. And between them, that's where God says he dwells. And below him is the, called the mercy seat. And inside the Ark are the law, the tables of law. And the picture is what the priest taught them and what your father would tell you is that the picture is God dwelling there. And he's looking at the law. And he realizes that we've all broken the law. That we're all sinners. And he sees that and sees us. And we can't be in his presence because he hates sin. And, and the, the, your father would tell you all that. Said, but the priest takes his blood in. And he pours it on the mercy seat. He pours it there and the picture is that God looks and now he can't see the law being broken. Now he sees the blood that's been paid. The propitiation. The sacrifice of atonement that's been made for all of our sins. The second word is a legal word. Justified. Justification. It means declared righteous. It's something a judge can do. If you go to court and you come out, you're either justified or you aren't. doesn't say anything about how you got there. In this world, we can go to court. In this day, in this legal system that we have, we can go to court and we can prove ourselves innocent. We can be pardoned. Judge can just say, I'm, I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to ignore it. We can get off on a technicality. We call that a miscarriage of justice sometimes. So that's not fair. They got off on some little bitty rule. We can bribe the judge. We can pay a penalty. We can do any of those things. And when we walk out, we're justified. We've been declared right. Now, if you were listening as you heard those, since you've learned about God in the last few weeks, you know that none of those work with God. You can't bribe God. You can't pay the penalty. The penalty is too big. You can't prove yourself innocent. None of them work. None of those plans. So this word justified is important to us. It means the judge declares us righteous somehow. Third word. It is a word from business world, the marketplace, commerce. It's redemption. Today in Sudan, the Muslims live in the north, wage war, civil war, with those who live in the south, mostly Christians. And part of the thing they do, the militias go down to the south and they take captives. They take children and women from all the villages and they make them slaves. They bring them back and try to convert them to Islam. And if they don't, they cut off fingers or do other things until they submit or they sell them to other places. 
They abused them, they tortured them, they raped them. It's going on today. Since 1995, there's a group called Christian Solidarity International who has built networks, underground railroads, and ways to get these slaves away from the Muslims. This picture is in 1997. John Ebner is the white man, and he is handing money to a Muslim. He is redeeming. 132 slaves in that picture. He's buying them back. He's paying the price for them. That's what redemption means. Now, now we're ready. Now, now we can look at the plan. The verse that was read for you earlier, 1 Timothy 1.15. So Christ Jesus came into the world... To save sinners. Remember our situation? We're sinners. We've got a God that can't be in our presence but wants to be so badly. So how did he work this out? What plan did he come up with? How did he figure to do this? Well, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, who's Christ Jesus? Well, John said he's God. First chapter of God. In the beginning, the Word was God. He was with God. And He became flesh. He came to earth. God said, get this. This is the plan. God says, I'll handle this. I will take care of it. I have this perfect problem, and I will solve it. He saw the plan centuries ago. He said, I will take care of it. This is the most amazing thing that ever happened. The God became man. But even more amazing than that is why he did it. He, he came to redeem us. He came to do all of those things that we've been talking about. Now, folks took a while to figure it out. You remember? Jesus is going around. He's teaching. He's healing people. He's got 12 guys following him. And all of this is going on. And John the Baptist is out there working and baptizing people. And remember one day, Jesus came into John's territory. And what did John do? John threw the brakes on. John said, whoa, hold it. Look at there. Look at him. That's the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God. And if you grew up, like we just described growing up, You'd start to figure out what the Lamb of God was. The Lamb of God? The one we've been looking for? That's Him. And at some points in this plan, we get to thinking, well, okay, this is pretty easy. God, He just comes down to earth, He makes a sacrifice. Hold it, this wasn't easy, folks. Jesus, very God himself, in the garden said, I know this is the plan. I know this is what we saw. I know this is how we said it had to work, but can't there be another way? Isn't there any way out of this? 
And the father said, no, this is the only way. This is the plan. Charts help me understand things. The chart in your handout got a little scrambled from my computer to the the printer. They ran into the software gremlins in there somewhere, but this is what it's kind of supposed to look like. It's supposed to be God and Jesus and us on the three corners, and then the three big words are on the side. Propitiation and justification and redemption. And explains to my engineer mind anyway how this all worked together, how this perfect plan worked together. Over on the left, Jesus Christ, what he did toward God was he was the propitiation. He was the sacrificing atonement. God is perfectly just. He's perfectly fair. He has to pour his wrath out on sin. Jesus said, I will pay that price. I will be the propitiation. I will be poured out on the mercy seat. And his blood sacrifice, because he was the perfect lamb, satisfied God's wrath. When you got done on the Day of Atonement as that little Jewish boy or girl, your daddy would explain to you, now that takes care of it for another year. We really can't get rid of sin. God allows us to go another year without punishing us. But next year we'll have to do it again. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God. He turned away God's righteous wrath. Because of that, on the right side, between God and man, there was justification. God now, because a price had been paid, the only price had been paid, God could declare man righteous. He declares me and you righteous. It doesn't matter where we're standing in the line. He looks at us and says, all right, I'll declare you righteous because I can't see you. I see the blood of my son. He was the propitiation for you, so I will justify you. And on the bottom, between Jesus and man, what did Jesus do? He redeemed us. He bought us out of slavery. We were captive to sin. Satan had us. And Jesus went and paid the price. That's how it all works together. It's the best plan ever. Now, as I said, we're going to finish by just reading six verses that are going to explain the whole plan. It's in Romans chapter 3. It's a most wonderful passage. Paul wrote this. Now, when I read it sometimes, I think I wish I could hear Paul recite this. I wish I could hear Paul recite these few verses. Because Paul understood it. Paul grew up with his daddy taking those sheep to sacrifice. Paul understood how hard it was to try to keep all of the rules which he did. And he understood what a sinner he was even though he tried to keep all of the rules. 
And in this book of Romans, the most amazing thing, he explains it for a couple of chapters before. He's explained just what we've been talking about. He starts off talking about how bad sin is. He makes it sound worse than I made it sound. Because he understood it. He explained how bad sin is, and then he went through all of man's excuses. You remember we did that. All the things we try to pile on the scales. Well, we'll work our way out of this. Paul talked about all of those, all of the junk that we pile on the scales, and none of it works. No matter how hard we try to gain our righteousness, we're still sinners. We're still in the line. That's what Paul's explained in this book of Romans. And now he gets to chapter 3, and let's start in verse 21. He says, but now, all these other things that didn't work, none of this other stuff worked. We've still got the same problem. We're sinners and God is God. So now, a righteousness from God. A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. But to which the law and the prophets testify. You read the whole Bible and you understand this. A righteousness. That's that right standing that we want. We want to be right so we can be in God's presence. He wants us to be right so we can be in His presence. We've tried everything we can. We can't get there. Paul says, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith. This righteousness from God. See, Christianity is the only religion like this. Every other religion in the world has got man doing something. Man has to do this, he has to perform this way, he has to try this, he has to exceed here to be right with whatever God that system talks about. Christianity, look at this, this righteousness from God, not from me, not from you. That's why it doesn't matter where we're standing in the line. The righteousness comes from God through faith. In Jesus Christ to all who believe. (laughs) The plan sounded good before, but it's getting better. This comes through faith. God worked it out where the price was paid. And what do we have to do? We have to believe that he worked it out. I don't have to die on the cross. I don't have to die for my sins. I have to believe that God worked it out. And some of you way back in the line are saying, well, this isn't fair. I hadn't sinned that much. Those guys up there on the stage, up in front, man, whew. And you're saying we're all in the same boat? Verse 23, there is no difference. There's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Don't talk to me about where you are on the line. It doesn't matter. Because we're all in the same situation. Verse 24, and all are justified. 
He just said, all fall short of the glory of God. And he says, now are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see why you had to know those words? How's this plan work? We are justified freely. We're declared righteous by God. By his grace. By his grace. You, you mean he just forgave things? I, I thought God couldn't just overlook things. No, no, keep reading. By his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the price. He redeemed us. He bought us back because of that. Because of the propitiation, he can justify us. Verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. There's your last word. Through faith in his blood. His blood, his perfect blood, the perfect lamb of God, sinless, never sinned, paid the price. That was the sacrifice of atonement. Read the book of Hebrews and what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, argues all through there is how much better this plan is than the old plan. The old plan, you had to do it over and over and over every week and every week and every year. You had to do the Day of Atonement and all of that. Jesus did it once for all. The sacrifice of atonement. We could spend hours talking about that itself. Just what happened on the cross. But let's just call it a sacrifice of atonement. Can you imagine what that was like from heaven? I mean, this was the plan coming to God had seen it. The angels didn't get it. Can you imagine them looking down at the Holy One who they'd sent to earth? There with two other humans on a hill, on a cross, with his head hanging down and moaning with the wind. And over there, all the religious guys all decked out in their uniforms and smiling and laughing and sneering. And down there, Jesus' very mother being comforted by the women. I know all of heaven was ready to fight. They stood ready. But the Creator never gave the command. He could have ordered them down to help. But he didn't. Instead, he said, it must be done. He turned his back. And when he did, God's wrath that we talked about fell fully on Jesus the Son. All of his wrath poured out. Infinite wrath. What you and I should get was poured out that day on Jesus. The end of verse 25 and verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, in his patience, see all this stuff we've learned coming in these few verses? Because in his forbearance, 
He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. When you sin, you deserve to die. He didn't kill everybody when they sinned. He loved them, so he was merciful and patient. He rolled it forward every year with the Day of Atonement. He kept taking care of it. He kept letting it go. And you think that's back then. No, he keeps letting yours go too. He keeps being patient with you. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. A week ago, we didn't think this was possible. A week ago, how does this God who's perfectly just and perfectly holy and perfectly loving and perfect, all of this, how does he work this out? He did. He worked it out. And Paul explains it here in just six verses. He is just, but he also justifies us. He justifies us without killing us, without punishing us. I call this the best plan ever. I think I understated it. There's got to be a bigger word than best. Maybe not, maybe best is the best word, but let me tell you this. The more you study it, the more you think about it, the more you understand it, the more you'll agree it's the best plan ever. Because of snow and everything else, I was supposed to preach this sermon about three weeks ago, I think. I can't even remember how messed up we are. But I've had those extra weeks to think about it. This means more today than it did three weeks ago. As I keep thinking about it, the more you'll think about it, the more you'll understand it. The more you'll understand the best plan ever. There's even more good news. Next week, we're going to talk about the lifetime guarantee. We got we got the plan that forgives our sins, but we got a lifetime guarantee. Gets better, folks. Now. I said you'll understand this better. The more you think about it, the more you understand it, the more you study it. And in one sense you can. You'll sit there and study the triangle and all of that and put things together and it'll mean more to you. But I'll tell you when it's really going to mean something to you. It's when it becomes personal. When you understand this isn't about God and all the sinners that ever lived and the Apostle Paul and the people in the line and all that. This is about God and me. It's about God and me. During the Civil War, there were lots of atrocities committed on both sides, I'm sure. But over in Palmyra, Missouri, there was one committed. The military had control of the town of Palmyra. Had a bunch of prisoners of war in the city jail. The commander found out that somebody in town had told the other side what was going on, where the forces were and all of that, an informer in town. So he made a ruling that that had to be paid for. He got the list of all the prisoners of war, and he said, I want ten of them to come out and we'll execute them. 
So he randomly picked ten names off of the list of prisoners of war. One of the names he read was William T. Humphrey. William T. Humphrey came out and his wife immediately began to cry and plead with the commander. She told him that he was a father, that he had several children and on and on. And the commander evidently had a little mercy in him. He said, well, give me the list again. And he called another name, Hiram Smith. Hiram Smith came out and he said, would you take this man's place? Hiram heard the story and Hiram was a single man and he reasoned that it was better for a single man to die than for a family man, so he volunteered. William T. Humphrey got to go back in the jail and Hiram Smith took his line in the firing line and ten shots rang out and ten men died. In the churchyard in Palmyra, there's a tombstone. G.W. Humphrey put that tombstone up. He was the son of William T. Humphrey. He put on the tombstone, This monument is dedicated to the memory of Hiram Smith, the hero who sleeps beneath this sod, who was shot at Palmyra October 17, 1862, as a substitute for William T. Humphrey, my father. We're guilty. He was innocent. We deserve the wrath of God. He took our place. When it becomes personal to you, you'll understand the best plan ever. If you need to respond this morning, come. Let's stand and sing.